I'm here in Washington, D.C. to interview a man who, until very recently, was America's top military spy chief, the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA, and before that, a commander with JSOC, the elite military unit which helps run President Obama's shadow war. Many people would argue that the U.S. actually saw the rise of ISIL coming and turned a blind eye, or even encouraged it as a counterpoint to Assad. And a secret analysis by the agency you ran, the Defense Intelligence Agency, in August 2012 said, and I quote, there is the possibility of establishing a That's declared so or undeclared <laughs> Salafist, it's not secret anymore, it was released under FOI. The quote is, there is the possibility of establishing a declared or undeclared Salafist principality in eastern Syria, and this is exactly what the supporting powers to the opposition want in order to isolate the Syrian regime. The US saw the ISIL caliphate come and did nothing. Yeah, I think that what we, where we missed the point, I mean, where we totally blew it, I think, was in the very beginning. I mean, we're talking four years now into this effort in Syria. Most people won't even remember, it's only been a couple of years, the Free Syrian Army, that, that movement. I mean, where are they today? Al-Nusra, where are they today? And what have, how much have they changed? When you don't get in and help somebody, they're going to find other means to achieve their goals. And I think right now what we have allowed is a whole new world. We've, uh, yeah, we've allowed this, we've allowed this extremist, you know, these extremist militants to come in. But why did you and, allow them to do that, General? Well, you were in post. Are, you were the head are, of the yeah, Defense right, Intelligence right. Agency. Well, those I, are, those I, are I, policy issues. I took the liberty, took the liberty of printing issues. out that document. Yeah. This is yeah. the memo I quoted from. Did you see this document in 2012? Was this come across your table? One of oh, your yeah, yeah, yeah. I paid very close attention okay. to all this. So when you sure saw did. this, did you not pick up a phone and saying, what on earth are sure. we doing supporting I mean, that, these Syrian that, rebels? That kind of information are... is presented, and, and what did you those, do become, those become, I argued about it. Did you say we shouldn't be supporting these groups? I did. I mean, we argued about these, the different groups that were there, and we said, you know, who is it that is involved here? And I will tell you that uh, I, I do believe uh, that the, the intelligence was very clear and now it's a, it's a matter of whether or not policy is going to be as clear and as defining and as precise as it needs to be, and I don't believe it was. Just on, just on what you're saying, just to clarify here, you're saying today, today my understanding is you're saying we should have backed the rebels. You're saying in government you agreed with this We analyst. should have done more earlier on in this effort uh, you know, then, then we did. We, but we in 2012, really, we, but in we 2012, which was can. We three, that can, but three years ago, let's just be clear, just right. for the sake of our viewers. In 2012, your agency was saying, quote, the Salafists, the Muslim Brotherhood and Al-Qaeda in Iraq are the major forces driving the insurgency in Syria. Mm -hmm. In 2012, the US yeah. was helping coordinate arms transfers to those same groups. Why did you not stop that if you're worried about the rise of quote unquote yeah, Islamic I, I, extremism? I mean, I hate to say it's not my job, but that my job was to was to ensure that the that the accuracy of our intelligence that was being presented was was as good as it could be. And I will tell you, it, it goes before 2012. I mean, when we we're when we were in Iraq and we still had decisions to be made before there was a decision to pull out of Iraq in 2011. I mean, it was very clear what we, what we were going to face. Well, I admire your frankness very on this subject. Very clear what we were going to let face. Me, let me just, to, one, before we move on, just to clarify once more, you are basically saying that even in government at the time, you knew those groups were around, you saw this analysis, sure. and you were arguing against it. But who wasn't listening? I think the, I think the administration. The administration turned a blind eye to your analysis. I don't know the if they turned a blind eye. I think it was a decision. I think it was a willful decision. A willful decision to go support an insurgency that had Salafists, Al Qaeda, well, and a Muslim willful decision to do what they're doing, which which you have to really you have to really ask the president, what is it that he actually is doing with the with the uh, policy that is in place? Because 
it is very, very confusing. I'm sitting here today, Maddie, and I don't, I can't tell you exactly what that is. And I've been at this for a long time. Mr. President, first of all, thank you for taking the time thank to talk so with much. us. Uh, when you signed the National Defense Authorization Act into law, you issued a signing statement at that time that right. said you would not use that power for indefinite detention on Americans. You understood right. the concerns that people had. Yeah. Uh, a judge earlier this year issued that the administration couldn't use those powers because it's um, unconstitutional. So why are the government's own lawyers fighting that judge's order, the injunction in particular? Yeah. Well, look, uh, the basic principle here is, number one, my first job is to keep the American people safe. Number two, we've got to do it in a way that respects our values uh, and our traditions of rule of law. Uh, that's why I ban torture. Uh, that's why uh, I've argued that we should actually close Guantanamo. Uh, but I've also said that you know, we've got uh, some bad guys uh, who are down there who we may not be able to try in a traditional court, but uh, have pledged to try to hurt Americans. And so that's something that we inherited, that we're dealing with, and it's complicated. On the other hand, what I also said was uh, a U.S. citizen can never uh, be subject to that kind of detention. Congress disagreed with me, uh, and I didn't want uh, us to not be able to finance our military and pay our soldiers and our troops. Uh, so I signed the bill, but what I also said was, look, uh, that I'm never going to use this power, and uh, you know what I would uh, suspect is that um, uh, the courts are going to agree with us over the long term that that is not something that you can use when it comes to U.S. citizens. Well, let me ask you then also about the the so-called presidential kill list that's gotten a lot of attention, and this this list of, of folks who have been targeted for assassination, right. and on that list have been U.S. citizens who have not been afforded trial, including Anwar Awolaki. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you, as president or any president for that matter, regardless of party or person, utilize that power to assassinate even U.S. citizens? Well, first of all, you're uh, basing this on uh, reports in uh, the news that uh, have never been confirmed by me, uh, and I don't talk about our national security uh, decisions in that way. Uh, more broadly, though, uh, our goal has been to focus on al-Qaeda, uh, to focus narrowly on those who would pose an imminent threat to the United States of America, uh, and that's why it's not just bin Laden, but a whole tier of al-Qaeda leadership uh, has been taken off the field. And uh, that's part of what has allowed us to now begin to transition out of Afghanistan, to begin to bring our troops home. Uh, we're going to have to be vigilant uh, for the foreseeable future when it comes to terrorists, but we have to do so in a way that is consistent with the laws of war, with international law. Uh, that's something we've always abided by, but beyond that, I probably can't comment on, on something uh, as specific as what you just mentioned. But can you comment on, on you mentioned about al-Qaeda during your speech, going after al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, certainly going after them in Yemen as well. Yeah. And yet there's some concern about the U.S. funding uh, the Syrian opposition when there are a lot of reports that al-Qaeda is yeah. kind of heading up that opposition. Uh, how do you justify the two? Well, I, uh, I share that concern. Uh, and so uh, what we've done is to say we will provide non-lethal assistance to Syrian opposition leadership that are committed to a political transition, committed to uh, a, uh, an observance of human rights, we're not going to just dive in and get involved with a civil war that, in fact, uh, involves some elements of people who are genuinely trying to get a better life, but also involve uh, some folks who would, over the long term, do uh, the United States harm. So Syria is a tough situation, uh, but this is an example of a broader foreign policy that I've tried to implement that is practical, that applies common sense, that says we can't solve every problem uh, or throw uh, uh, our troops into harm's way 
every time there's a, a, a situation in the Middle East. Uh, what we have to do is selectively say, what is it that uh, is most important to protect U.S. persons, U.S. property, our bases around the world, and how can we help those forces that care about human rights, those forces that are seeking democracy. Uh, we want to encourage them. Uh, in some cases, like Libya, we're able to make a difference. Um, Syria is a more complicated situation, and we're trying to work with the international community to see if we can bring about Assad leaving and we can bring about a more peaceful resolution to the problem. And you did mention, one more, you did mention the speech as well about Afghanistan, and yet uh, while we do see a drawdown of troops, we're talking about at least 10 more years there being spent in, a, in a, an advisory role. Mm -hmm. And yet we continually see these, these Afghan soldiers and policemen turn their weapons on our soldiers. Is it worth it for us to retain American lives there? Americans who were being killed by these Afghan soldiers are supposed to be training. Shouldn't we just bring all those troops home, or do we stay another 10 years? Well, keep in mind, we're not planning to stay another 10 years. This war will be over in 2014. Uh, what we've said is we'll partner uh, with Afghans, just as we partner with a whole bunch of countries all around the world. Um, the, the recent spate of uh, what are called green on blue attacks, where uh, folks who are at least in Afghan police or military uniforms uh, end up attacking us, uh, is something that's deeply troubling and our Joint Chiefs are spending a lot of time on. Keep in mind, though, there are 300,000 Afghan soldiers that are partnering with us. Uh, yeah, and so even one attack like this is one too many. But uh, it's absolutely not true that what we're seeing is generally uh, antagonism with Afghan forces. In fact, they welcome and are uh, very interested in us training them so that they can be responsible for their own security. And the sooner we can accomplish that, the better off we are. But my intention is we are going to have our combat troops out of Afghanistan by the uh, end of 2014. And this is a contrast uh, among many uh, that I've got with uh, uh, the other party. Uh, Governor Romney hasn't been clear about what exactly his plans are uh, when it comes to Afghanistan. He criticized me about ending the war in Iraq, as I did. Uh, I think the American people understand that after a decade of war, uh, our soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen, Coast Guardsmen, uh, and their families have made enormous sacrifice. They've carried an enormous burden. Uh, we need to focus our attention not only on going after al-Qaeda and terrorists who would attack us, but we've also got to do some nation building here at home. Uh, and that's going to be one of my uh, number one priorities is using some of the money that we're saving on war to help rebuild Ohio, help rebuild the United States, put people back to work, because we're only going to be as strong militarily as we are economically. And uh, I think the, the choice in this election for a lot of folks is going to come down to who's going to be in a better position to strengthen our economy and our middle class who have been taking it on the chin for uh, over a decade now and I'm confident that the plan I'll present on Thursday uh, is going to be a better plan. What was the uh, United States role in invading Libya under the Obama administration? Okay, so you know this is one of the ones that they call leading from behind and try to say oh no it's uh, I saw someone the other day um, was arguing that America didn't have anything to do with that. That was the French and the British that did that. But that's just not true. And the French and the British were waiting on Obama to give them the okay. And Obama was the one who gave the okay. And in fact, just in a speech in while he was traveling in Brazil, he said, okay, we're, we're going to war, everybody. And then he relied on a ridiculous lie, a preposterous lie, that Gaddafi had sworn that he was going to murder every last man, woman, and child in the city of Benghazi. 
if we didn't get in there and stop him. And that would be the equivalent of letting someone kill every last man, woman, and child in the city of Charlotte. That's, you know, that was the, the relative size that Obama cited, Charlotte, North Carolina. And so um, that was why we had to start the war. And at the beginning of the war, it was all American planes, Air Force and Navy planes that did all of the original shock and awe attacks. And it was a combination of American, French and British special operations forces on the ground that led the Mujahideen through the war. And that is who it was. And, you know, I'll encourage your audience because it's a hoot to go and watch Michael Scheuer. That's S-C-H-E-U-E-R. Go type in Michael Scheuer, CNN, Libya. And you'll see Michael Scheuer on CNN. And he gets in a fight with the two anchor ladies because he's saying, look, the fighters in this war against Gaddafi right now, in any other war, we would call them the Mujahideen. That's who they are. These are the guys who are the Libyan veterans of Iraq War II. They just got back from Iraq where they were fighting with Zarqawi. They were the worst part of part of the worst part of the Sunni based insurgency that the Americans were fighting in Iraq War II. And now they've come home to Libya and they've set their sights on Gaddafi. And the, the CNN lady says, oh, come on, Mr. CIA officer. You must not know what you're talking about because wouldn't the CIA officers be vetting these guys? And Shory says, well, yeah, sure. The, the CIA is vetting the guys that come to be vetted by the CIA, but everybody else isn't talking to the CIA. They're just going to be taking advantage of the entire situation, and they're going to ultimately be the winners. And the, the CNN lady is like, well, we just refuse to believe that because we don't want to because this is an American war and it's great. And Shory's like, yeah, well, so what? You're just carrying water for Mr. Obama. You don't want to know the truth that what we're doing is we're taking the side of our enemies in this thing. And they're like, oh, sure. Yeah, right. Like we would carry water for Barack Obama. I think we've you've had your say, Mr. Shorter. You have a nice day now. And they hang up on him. And that was probably the last time he was ever on CNN. And then what happened? Who was it? It was Al Qaeda in Iraq. It was the Libyan veterans of Al Qaeda in Iraq. They had been. You know, the, the British MI6 had helped create the Libyan Islamic fighting group in the first place and had tried to use them to kill Gaddafi back in 2000. Then they became the bad guys again for a little while. And then uh, in Iraq War II, then when they came home from Iraq War II, they decided, oh, yeah, it's our old friends in the Libyan Islamic fighting group. We're not going to call them AQI anymore. Now we're going to call them LIFG and Ansar al-Sharia. And these are moderate rebels. And everything will be fine. And then and this included a, a guy named Hasidi who told the Telegraph, yeah, I'm a veteran of Iraq War II where I killed Americans. What of it? Okay, I guess nothing. No problem. Go ahead. And then this guy, Abdul Hakim Belhaj, had been abducted by the CIA and the British and tortured in Thailand for being an associate of bin Laden and then had been rendered back to Libya where Gaddafi had him in prison, but Gaddafi let him go because that was one of the demands of the international community was you got to let all your Mujahideen out of prison. And so he gave in to that demand and let this guy and others out. And this guy ended up, after Obama put him in power in Tripoli, he sued. Now, there's no such thing as anything like the rule of law in America, so that went nowhere. But in Britain, 
he actually sued and won, at least through like a couple of appellate levels. He sued the MI6 for kidnapping and torturing him. And the British courts let the case go through. I don't know if he finally won or what. Um, but then, um, you know, this is part of the story of what happened to Ambassador Stevens in 2012. September 11, 2012, the American ambassador to Libya was killed. Well, first of all, it took nine months for the Mujahideen and American and allied air power to win the war. Um, and then Gaddafi was hunted down and uh, raped with a bayonet and then shot in the back of the head on the side of the road. Um, and then a, approximately a year after that, Ambassador Stevens and some others at the makeshift consulate in Benghazi were killed. Well, first question, why weren't they in Tripoli? What were they doing in Benghazi? And of course, the answer is this was Hillary Clinton's bank shot as the New York Times reported it, her bank shot to take all the Mujahideen and all the weapons from Libya and start funneling them on to Syria for the next regime change in favor of Al-Qaeda against another secular socialist dictator. Uh, and so that's why they were in Benghazi, is they were running guns and terrorists off to Syria. The Qataris were, you know, mostly... Uh, you know, running the thing, but the CIA was overseeing the whole thing and and the ambassador was helping to coordinate it. Well, guess what? Just because you love Al-Qaeda don't mean that they love you now. And so just because these guys thought, oh, good, it's the Reagan years again and we can or the Bill Clinton years. And we can go back to back in these guys. Well, they still hate your guts. And what happened was. Um, Obama and the CIA had done a drone strike in. um in um, Pakistan that had killed a guy named Sheikh Yahya Al-Libi. Now, you might recognize the name Al-Libi because Sheikh Yahya Al-Libi's brother, I forgot his first name now off the top of my head, but his brother had been the guy that Dick Cheney and the CIA and the Egyptians tortured into pointing the finger at Saddam Hussein back in 2002. Oh, yeah. Saddam Hussein, he taught us Al-Qaeda guys how to make chemical weapons and how to hijack airplanes and all this. And in fact, the CIA themselves, we know now the CIA debunked this. And so we don't believe him because we hired the Egyptians to torture it out of them. And so this is not really reliable data. But don't worry, Colin Powell used it in his U.N. speech to lie us into war anyway. Um, but then in 2012, in July of 2012, CIA killed his brother. Yahya Alibi in a drone strike in Pakistan. And right after that, I'm in Al-Zawahiri, or like a month later or something, I'm in Al-Zawahiri, um, because bin Laden was dead by then. Zawahiri put out a podcast saying, okay, it's time to avenge our great Libyan friend, uh, Sheikh Yahya Alibi, who was murdered by the Americans. Hey, friendly Libyan Mujahideen. I hear that you guys have some Americans in your midst who think that they're so clever that they're using you in Syria. Well, now's your chance. And hey, the anniversary of September 11th is coming up. And so then what happened on September 11th? Ansar al-Sharia attacked and killed the American ambassador and, you know, some of his handlers and a couple of CIA guys, too, who were at the the house down the road. And... So then this is a great story because it's the definition of the modified limited hangout, right? So first of all, a limited hangout, and that, that phrase was, I believe, coined by Richard Nixon himself in discussions with Ehrlichman and Halderman, his right-hand men. Okay, so a limited hangout 
is like when a kid admits that he did something wrong because he's trying to prevent you from finding out what he really did. That was really that bad. So he confesses halfway and government does that a lot. Right. So they said, well, you know, um, you know, the problem here was that we didn't have enough security. And um, so our guy got killed. And yeah. Okay, but then here's the modified limited hangout. The modified limited hangout is when you lie about your limited hangout. And so we go, yeah, you know what it was? It was a big protest over this video on YouTube that got out of hand and turned into a riot. And that's what killed the guys. So now you're telling a half story and you're lying about the half a story too. So everybody gets all caught up fighting over whether this YouTube video, the innocence of Muslims had caused the riot or not. And they get all caught up over how much security should have been there or not. And then only 1% of people are asking the question, why were these guys in Benghazi and not Tripoli? <laughs> what was even going on there at all? Oh, you were working with the Qataris to funnel a bunch of Al Qaeda terrorists off to Syria and you had stationed your ambassador in the middle of a hornet's nest and now you're surprised that he got stunk, right? So that's the real truth. But the modified limited hangout ended up, and look, you know, um, the way they use the word gate after every scandal, you know, like Watergate, but now it's like Lewinsky gate and whatever gate, right? Well, now Ghazi has become kind of a joke like gate only this is when it's a fake scandal because the Republicans spent years holding all these hearings. Remember Trey Gowdy and all these guys holding all these hearings about, well, was it really a riot over the, over the video or not? And, and how much security was there or not? And the Democrats saw this to be essentially just a completely trumped up scandal, a fake scandal meant to just hurt Obama, even though it was simply a matter of bad things happen sometimes or something like that. So now whenever there's a fake scandal, they'll add Ghazi on the end. And in fact, I've even seen like left wingers who are good on Russiagate because they're not Democrats. They're too left for the Democrats. And so they'll call it Russia Ghazi. Oh, yeah, Russia Ghazi. And that's means of a fake scandal that's built out of nothing. But of course, that comes from how fake the modified limited hangout was, not how fake the real scandal behind the death of the ambassador and the entire operation that was going on in Benghazi. And by the way, what if they told the truth at that time? Or what if the truth had come out and they hadn't been able to suppress it? Well, then maybe, just maybe, the, the pressure for the intervention in Syria would have been lessened. And the argument on behalf of staying out of Syria would have been strengthened. That look, from the beginning, these guys aren't moderates. If they're so moderate, how come they killed our ambassador in Libya? They never were moderates. They're Al-Qaeda guys. They always were. And there were different armed factions that rose up. But within the first year of the war in Syria, the entire opposition was dominated by Al-Qaeda in Iraq who had come across the border from Iraq. They'd been almost entirely eliminated by the Iraqi Sunnis. And then Obama came and resuscitated them right back to life and gave them a whole new battleground to fight in. And then allied with Turkey, Israel, Saudi, and Qatar, billions and billions of dollars in cold hard cash and weapons to fight that war. 
that ended up lasting for five years and grew into the actual Islamic State, the the Islamo-fascist caliphate of George Bush's ridiculous propaganda and Osama bin Laden's wildest dreams actually did come true because Obama backed them in Syria and to such a degree that they ended up strong enough that they were able to conquer all of Western Iraq and, and Eastern Syria and Western Iraq, which necessitated then Iraq War Three that Obama launched in August of 2014 and lasted through the end of 2017 there to destroy the Islamic State. So who was the U.S. backing in Syria in Operation Timber Sycamore? Well, so it's beyond Timber Sycamore. Timber Sycamore was just one part of it. Um, but overall, they were – I don't know if they ever directly backed the al-Nusra front there, but they didn't need to. All they needed was the slightest deniability. You know, the so-called moderate rebel groups like the Al-Farouk Brigade, the Al-Hazm Brigade, the uh, Nur al-Zinki, and these other groups. The CIA would give the weapons and the money to them, and then they would turn it right over to the al-Nusra front. They would come and train with the Americans in Jordan and in Turkey. They'd get their weapons, their training, their money, and then they'd turn right around and go and join the ranks of the al-Nusra front. And the al-Nusra front is nothing but the Syrian faction, the Syrian-dominated faction of al-Qaeda in Iraq from Iraq War II. And so then the split between ISIS and al-Nusra came in 2013 when the leader of ISIS decided, well, bin Laden's dead. and so he might have done what bin Laden said, but who's Ayman al-Zawahiri anyway? And, and, you know, why should I listen to him? And Zawahiri was the guy who said, we have to attack the United States first. We have to get rid of the far enemy first, bog them down, bleed them to bankruptcy like the Soviets, force them out of the region. Only then can we try to create our Islamo-fascist caliphate, because otherwise the Americans will come and bomb it off the face of the earth again. And so Baghdadi said... Well, nuts to you. I want my caliphate now, and I don't want to wait. You know, they had renamed al-Qaeda in Iraq. They had renamed it the Islamic State of Iraq back in 2006, which at the time was kind of a joke because they had no ability to create a state anywhere at all. But it also showed you where their head was at and what it was that they wanted out of all of this. And so by 2013, essentially in the spring of 2013, the Iraqi-dominated faction of al-Qaeda in Iraq split off from the Syrian-dominated faction of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which is known as al-Nusra, and started going by their old name again, the Islamic State of Iraq. Now they added and Syria, or and the Levant. And Zawahiri sent an emissary to come and negotiate to keep ISIS in the al-Qaeda group. And Baghdadi killed the emissary and said to Zawahiri, you made your law, let's see you enforce it, right? Like Andrew Jackson and the Supreme Court um, on the Trail of Tears. So um, then he consolidated power over eastern Syria. And then one year later, in the spring of 2014, rolled right into western Iraq. And so none of this could have happened without the U.S. And in fact, that famous uh, photo of the line of Toyota trucks rolling in from Syria toward Mosul. Where did all those trucks come from? They came from Hillary Clinton and the State Department. They were the ones who arranged for all those trucks. It was Barack Obama's government who had given all those trucks. There's a great story in uh, Public Radio International all about it. And you might remember this story. You can still find memes about this sometimes. Of There was a guy who owned a plumbing company 
in Corpus Christi, Texas, who had his the name of his company and the phone number on the side of his truck. It was a work truck, and he had sold it to traded it in to a local uh, car dealership for a new truck. And then, like half a year later, there's footage coming out of Syria of these terrorists firing a machine gun from the back of his old truck. And people are calling the guy and threatening to kill him and his kids because he's a traitor on the side of the terrorists and all this stuff. And he's like, come on, man, I'm a plumber from Corpus. I never left the thing. I'm a proud American patriot. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, of course, what had happened was the State Department had bought his truck and had given it to these guys. That's the only explanation for how that they had gotten their hands on it. And so, um, you know, Obama claimed, in fact, there's a hilarious clip. If you've never seen this, Keith, you've got to look up this great clip of Ben Swan, the libertarian, uh, former local news uh, anchor, interviewing Barack Obama. And Barack Obama comes to his town and Ben Swan has a chance to ask him some questions. And I love the way he sets it up, too. He goes, you know, right now, this is before we took al-Qaeda's side in Yemen. This is when we're still fighting against al-Qaeda in Yemen. He goes, right now, uh, you're, you're hunting and, and killing. You got the CIA hunting and killing these al-Qaeda guys in Pakistan and in Yemen, fighting this war against al-Qaeda, right? And Obama's like, uh-huh, yeah. And he goes, so how come you're backing al-Qaeda in Syria? And Obama goes, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the thing. And actually, you know, I'll tell you, Ben, what we're doing is – we're being very careful. Like he concedes, okay, we're backing the same side of the war that Al Qaeda's on, but we're being very careful about vetting who we supply. <laughs> and also, we're not giving them weapons. We're just giving them non-lethal material, like say pickup trucks and money that, of course, could be used to buy guns and the rest. Um, and then I I can't leave this out. Uh, there's an article in the atlantic it's an interview of obama by jeffrey goldberg who's israel's commissar of american media and uh jeffrey goldberg basically first of all the article is called as president i don't bluff and what he's talking about there is he's saying to jeffrey goldberg would you please tell the israelis for me that you believe me when i say that i will never let iran get nukes i will nuke iran before i let them get nukes and when I'm making a deal with them, that's to prevent them from getting nukes, not to help them get nukes. You believe me, don't you, John, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg? Please tell the Israelis for me. They listen to you. That's essentially the point of the interview. OK, but they talk about Syria in there again. It's called as president. I don't bluff. OK, you go through there, control F for Syria and you find Jeffrey Goldberg says to Obama, hey, man, don't you think that if we got rid of Assad in Syria, this is spring of 2012. So this is, you know, a year into the intervention here. Don't you think that if we um, got rid of Assad, that that would be a great way to weaken Iran? And Obama says, absolutely. That's exactly what we're doing. And that's exactly why we're doing it. We're targeting Assad, the secular Baathist dictator of, of Syria whose coalition government essentially protects all of the ethnic and religious minorities, the Alawites, the Shiites, the Druze, the Assyrian, Chaldean, and Marianite Christians, and at least a solid plurality, if not the majority, of the Sunni Arabs as well from these Mujahideen terrorists that are being backed by the U.S. And he said, 
yeah, but if we got rid of him, wouldn't that help weaken Iran? And Obama says, yep, that's right. That's exactly what we're doing and why we're doing it. And so then Goldberg says, well, but what exactly are we doing? Can you tell me some more about what we're doing to achieve that goal? And he says, sorry, I can't tell you, Jeffrey, because your classified clearance isn't high enough. In other words, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. Joke, joke. Meaning that, yeah, we are arming the terrorists to fight against Assad, but I can't go into the details on that. But it ain't just trucks. And by the way, of course, as I mentioned, the Saudis, the Qataris, the Turks, and the Israelis were all working together on this same plan, too. In fact, type in uh, for your audience, type in Biden, Harvard, Syria. And there's a clip on YouTube of Biden at Harvard explaining this whole thing, but blaming it on all of our allies instead of taking any responsibility for the Obama administration himself. He says, oh, no, it's just Saudi and Turkey and Qatar who have decided that um, they want to back anybody who's opposing Assad. But it turns out that includes some really dangerous guys and that includes Al Qaeda terrorists. And so there's your story confirmed. In fact, I got another good one. Um, John Kerry, who was Hillary Clinton's replacement at state in the second term, John Kerry and his uh, assistant, I forgot the guy's name, they were secretly recorded while meeting with a group of exile rebel supporters in Great Britain. And they explain in there, John Kerry's own words, he's saying to them that, look, I know you guys want more guns, but we dumped a ton of guns into Syria, okay? And then he says this, I swear, you can check me. He says, we saw the rise of ISIS, but we thought we could manage. And we thought we'd be able to use the rise of ISIS as pressure against Assad, that he better resign. But that didn't work. Instead, he just called in Iran and Russia to help him. And so now we're in the position where we've got the Islamic State and I don't know, he doesn't say this specifically at that point, but the Islamic State headed east into western Iraq. They didn't go west to Damascus, or they, they did try for a bit. And in fact, it was in the November of 2015 that ISIS was finally ready to march on Baghdad and had cut one of the major uh, highways. I forgot which, I think it was the M4 highway they call it or something like that, um, between Damascus and Aleppo. And they were marching on Damascus. And it was only then that finally the Russians intervened and came in and started bombing them. And you'll remember all the outrage in the liberal media at the time that, oh, no, they're not bombing ISIS. They're bombing the rebels, meaning the CIA's terrorists. They're bombing the al-Nusra Front and their allies instead of their old allies, the Islamic State. And they even came up with all these lies that Assad was secretly backing ISIS when it was the Americans and their allies, especially Turkey, who had been backing ISIS. And Phil Giraldi, the former CIA officer, had gone in 2013, had gone to Turkey. He had formerly been stationed in Turkey when he was CIA and likes to go back there on vacation sometimes and things. And I forget if he was in, um, if he was in Ankara or Istanbul. I think he said he was in Ankara. And there are guys raising money for ISIS all up and down the street. In downtown Ankara, whatever, right there blatantly in front of everybody. And and everybody in the world knew that if you wanted to go and fight with ISIS, you got to go to Turkey and then go across the border from there. There was even a case where the FBI and the Justice Department prosecuted 
an American who was trying to travel to Turkey to go fight with al-Nusra over there. And his defense, which is totally believable, was, but the CIA recruited me. I was going to fight on the side of the good guys. <laughs> what do you mean? Now you're going to put me in prison for material support for terrorism? Well, the FBI and the CIA are always fighting. It just ain't fair. And so, um, and then, and there were hundreds of Americans, at least thousands of Europeans who went to Syria to fight on the side of the terrorists, who then the FBI admitted they weren't even tracking these guys. They didn't even know which Americans had gone to fight and might be coming back again. And yeah. Very much like uh, page 57 of Fool's Errand, where uh, you reference a conversation between Wesley Clark and Amy Goodman, where uh, mm -hmm. he refers to a memo uh, that Donald Rumsfeld, drawn up by Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld's staff, listing seven countries for regime change, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and Iran, or so um, we've gotten so much info on it. Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone. Some time ago, I came across these signs with U.S. Marines saying, Obama, I will not deploy to fight for your Al-Qaeda rebels in Syria. Wake up, people. I did not join the Navy to fight for Al-Qaeda in the Syrian Civil War. I will not fight for Al-Qaeda in Syria. There were a number of these protests, so I decided to ask Scott Horton what it meant when we had a number of what really appear to be Marines saying, I will not fight for Al-Qaeda in Syria and Libya. Now, one of the articles that Scott Horton mentions is an article from Foreign Affairs, a publication of the Council on Foreign Relations titled, Accepting Al-Qaeda, the Enemy of the United States' Enemy by Barack Mendelssohn, March 9th, 2015. The article is actually behind a paywall, so I was actually able to find it here, in which uh, part of the article says, Washington's reluctance to deploy combat forces against ISIS has limited its options to air power and a reliance on allies' ground forces. There are some merits to this strategy and signs that it is indeed bearing fruit. ISIS's astounding advance has been rolled back in some locations, such as Sinjahar, Iraq, Kohabi, Syria, but the unwillingness to invest greater American resources comes with a price. The United States is settling for limited and gradual projects progress, which is not enough to destroy ISIS. So, the article goes on. More so than during the bin Laden era, Al-Qaeda's cohesiveness depends on the ability of its leadership to hold the various franchises together. And it is unclear whether Al-Qaeda can endure another secession since Al-Qaeda's veteran leaders have dwindled considerably in recent years, making it more dependent on old guard figures such as Zawalhari to maintain unity. As such, the ground's fate may depend on Zawalhari's personal survival. It is certainly ironic that at this point, when the United States is is the closest it has ever been to destroying Al-Qaeda, its interests would be better served by keeping the terrorist organization afloat and Zwalhari alive. Here is the other article Scott mentions in The Atlantic, Obama to Iran and Israel. As President of the United States, I don't bluff. Jeffrey Goldberg, March 2nd, 2012. Now, if we look at the exchange, we scroll down to here. Goldberg says, can you just talk about Syria as a strategic issue? Talk about it as a humanitarian issue as well. But it would seem to me that 
One way to weaken and further isolate Iran is to remove or help remove Iran's only Arab ally, Obama. Absolutely, Goldberg. And so the question is, well, what else can this administration be doing? Um, he's openly saying, what can uh, the U.S. do in favor of Israel? Obama. Well, look, there's no doubt that Iran is much weaker now than it was a year ago. Two years ago, three years ago, the Arab Spring, as bumpy as it has been, represents a strategic defeat for Iran because what people in the region have seen is that all the impulses towards freedom and self-determination and free speech and freedom of assembly have been constantly violated by Iran. If you wanted a weaker Iran, why would you attack Iraq, who was their great enemy, who they had just had a war with, when you supported Iraq during the Iraq-Iran War? Under Reagan. Well, of course, as Vladimir Putin said to Oliver Stone, the U.S. presidents very often change. Their policies never do. The Iranian leadership is no friend of that movement toward human rights and political freedom, but more directly, it is now engulfing Syria, and Syria is basically their only true ally in the region. The Guardian, now the truth emerges how the U.S. fueled the rise of ISIS in Syria and Iraq. The sectarian terror group won't be defeated by Western states that incubated it in the first place, June 3rd, 2015. British state was itself providing an extensive support to the armed Syrian opposition. Didn't only include the non-lethal assistance boasted by the government, including bodied armor and military vehicles, but training, logistical support, and the secret supply of arms on a massive scale. Reports were cited that MI6 had cooperated with the Central Intelligence Agency on a rat line of armed transfers from Libyan stockpiles to the Syrian rebels in 2012 after the fall of the Gaddafi regime, the Islamic State formerly known as Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Defense Intelligence Agency document identifies Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which became ISIS, and fellow Salafates as the major forces driving the insurgency in Syria, and states that Western countries, the Gulf states and Turkey, were supporting the opposition's efforts to take control of Eastern Syria. Operation Timber Sycamore was a classified weapons supply and training program run by the United States Central Intelligence Agency and supported by some Arab intelligence services, such as the Security Service in Saudi Arabia. Launched in 2012 or 2013, it supplied money, weaponry, and training to rebel forces fighting Syrian President Bashar al-Assad in the Syrian Civil War. According to U.S. officials, the program was run by the CIA's Special Activities Division and has trained thousands of rebels. President Barack Obama secretly authorized the CIA to begin arming Syria's embattlement rebels in 2013. The program's existence was suspected after the U.S. Federal Business Opportunities website publicly solicited contract bids to ship tons of weaponry from Eastern Europe to Suku, Turkey, and Aqaba, Jordan. One consequence of the program has been to a flood of U.S. weapons, including assault rifles. Don't worry, I'm sure they had tons of background checks, which they totally support. Mortars and rocket-propelled grenades into the Middle East's black market. Oh, 
just like they did in Fast and Furious when they gave uh, guns to the Mexican drug cartel because they're so worried about guns getting in the hands of bad people. In July of 2017, U.S. officials stated that Timber Sycamore would be phased out with funds possibly redirecting to fighting the Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant ISIL or to offering rebel forces defensive capabilities. This is according to the Los Angeles Times. In Syria, militants armed by the Pentagon fight those armed by the CIA. In Syria, militants armed by the Pentagon fight those armed by the CIA. Unintended conflict. CIA armed Syrian rebels clash with Pentagon-backed militias along Turkish border. The fighting has intensified over the last two months as CIA armed units and Pentagon Pentagon armed ones have repeatedly shot at each other while maneuvering through contested territory on the northern outskirts of Aleppo, U.S. officials and rebel leaders have confirmed. A CIA-armed militia called Farsan al-Haq, or Knights of Righteousness. Any faction that attacks us, regardless of where it gets its support, we will fight. The rebel fighters described similar clashes in the town of Azaz. The attacks by one of the U.S.-backed groups against another, came amid continued heavy fighting in Syria and illustrated the difficulty facing U.S. efforts to coordinate among dozens of armed groups that are trying to overthrow the government of Bashar al-Assad. We can't defeat ISIL without that part of the question, so we keep trying to forge those relationships. ISIL is an acronym for the Islamic State. President Obama this month authorized a new Pentagon plan to train and arm Syrian fighter rebels. Last year, the Pentagon helped create a new military coalition, the Syrian Democratic Forces. While the Pentagon's actions are part of an overt effort by the U.S. and its allies against the Islamic State, the CIA's backing of militias is part of a separate covert U.S. effort aimed at keeping pressure on the Assad government in hopes of prodding the Syrian leader to the negotiation table. On February 18th, the Syrian Democratic Forces attacked a town. U.S.-led coalition fighting Islamic State knew their group had clashed with Pentagon-trained militias. So, that is uh, what's going on. They're arming both sides and uh, creating a conflict so they could come in as the saviors. David Petraeus's bright idea, give terrorist weapons to beat the terrorists from The Guardian. Former CIA director David Petraeus is advocating giving arms to members of Al-Nusra Front and Al-Qaeda offshoot to beat ISIS. This is madness. Here is the article continually ignored in the debate over arming Syrian rebels is that the CIA itself produced a study that concluded that arming any rebel force, whether they are notorious terrorist group or not, is generally a bad idea. The study found that most of the time, such attempts either fail spectacularly or backfire in the face of the United States, even if they initially succeed. This study, which is often classified was apparently disregarded by the Obama administration, and there's no proof Congress even saw it when voted to arm the moderate rebels in the first place. Petraeus is likely not the only one who thinks this plan to work with and arm members of al-Nusra, a front for al-Qaeda, is a good idea. 
Here we have the Washington Post, September 11th, 2013. The CIA begins weapons delivery to Syrian rebels, alleged use of chemical weapons in a deadly attack near Damascus last month from Bashar al-Assad was the justification, same justification they used under uh, Donald Trump's regime to send 57 Tomahawk missiles. Uh, these arms are being delivered as the United States is also shipping new types of non-lethal gear to the rebels. The aids include vehicles, sophisticated communications equipment, and advanced combat medical kits. The delays prompted several senior U.S. lawmakers to chide the Obama administration for not moving more quickly to aid the Syrian opposition after promising lethal assistance in June. This doesn't only lead to a more effective force, but it increasing it increases its ability to hold coalition groups together, said Mark S. Ward, the State Department senior advisor on assistance to Syria, who coordinates non-lethal aid to rebels from southern Turkey. Turkey, remember Turkey when the Ron Rand Paul Hillary Clinton clip comes up. They see their leadership is having some impact. The CIA shipments are to flow through a network of clandestine bases in Turkey and Jordan that were expanded over the past years as the agencies sought to help Middle Eastern allies, including Saudi Arabia and Qatar, direct weapons to moderate Syrian rebel forces. The CIA declined to comment, which is weird considering, according to CIA gov if you go to myth number six it is a myth that the CIA operates independently and is not an account it is not accountable to anyone the CIA is responsible to the American people we operate in accordance with oversight from US elected representatives so see you know you are the government you are the CIA when the CIA does something you do it you don't have any more information than the CIA or the FBI or the NSA does we are the government about 10 days after 9-11 I went through the Pentagon and I saw Secretary Rumsfeld and and Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz, I went downstairs just to say hello to some of the people on the joint staff who had used, used to work for me. And one of the generals called me and he said, sir, you got to come in. You got to come in and talk to me a second. I said, well, you're too busy. He said, no, no. He says, we've made the decision. We're going to war with Iraq. This was on or about the 20th of September. I said, we're going to war with Iraq. Why? He said, I don't know. <laughs> He said, I guess they don't know what else to do. So uh, I said, well, did they find some information collect connecting Saddam to Al-Qaeda? He said, no, no. He says, there's nothing new that way. They just made the decision to go to war with Iraq. He said, I guess it's like we don't know what to do about terrorists, but we've got a good military and we can take down governments. And um, he said, I guess if, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem has to look like a nail. So I came back to see him a few weeks later, and by that time we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. He said, he reached over on his desk, he picked up a piece of paper, and he said, I just, he said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense's office today, and he said, this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. I said, is it classified? He said, yes, sir. I said, <laughs> I said, well, don't show it to me.
And I saw him a year or so ago, and I said, you remember that? He said, sir, I didn't show you that memo. I didn't show it to you. Is the United States supporting al-Qaeda in Syria? The answer is yes. Fact number one, there is no question that al-Qaeda fighters are part of the opposition forces attempting to overthrow Syria's government. Fact number two, the creation of al-Qaeda wasn't Islamic fundamentalism, it was the CIA. The Mujahideen was created by the CIA to cause problems for the Soviets. And you might say that's crazy talk, right? Here's Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. To be, to be fair, we had helped to create the problem we're now fighting. How? Because when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, we had this brilliant idea that we were going to come to Pakistan and create a force of Mujahideen, equip them with Stinger missiles and everything else to go after the Soviets inside Afghanistan. And we were successful. The Soviets left Afghanistan. And then we said, great, goodbye leaving these trained people who were fanatical in Afghanistan and Pakistan, leaving them well armed, creating a mess, frankly, that uh, at the time we didn't really recognize. We were just so happy to see the Soviet Union fall and we thought, okay, fine, we're, we're okay now. Everything's gonna be so much better. Now you look back, the people we're fighting today, we were supporting in the fight against the Soviets. Ah, uh, so it's not a conspiracy theory, it's history. And it's history that's being repeated in Libya and now in Syria. But there is a bigger problem here, one that every American should be questioning. We're fighting al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, but we're also bombing al-Qaeda targets in Pakistan and in Yemen. And as we do that, something occurs known as collateral damage. Hundreds of civilians in Yemen have been killed in just the first half of 2012 by U.S. airstrikes aimed at al-Qaeda fighters. We also have a history of kind of moving in and out of Pakistan. I mean, let's remember here, the people we are fighting today, we funded 20 years ago. And we did it because we were locked in this struggle with the Soviet Union. They invaded Afghanistan, and we did not want to see them control Central Asia. And we went to work. And it was President Reagan in partnership with the Congress, um, led by Democrats, who said, you know what, sounds like a pretty good idea. Let's deal with the ISI and the Pakistani military, and let's go recruit these Mujahideen, and let's great, let's get some to come from Saudi Arabia and other places, importing their Wahhabi brand of Islam so that we can go beat the Soviet Union. And guess what? They retreated. They lost billions of dollars and it led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. So there's a, a very strong argument which is wasn't a bad investment to end the Soviet Union, but let's be careful what we sow because we will harvest. And we now are making up for a lot of lost time. So what you need to know tonight is heavy. Our government is bombing sites around the world in an ongoing war with Al-Qaeda. In Iraq, where Al-Qaeda had no presence before the U.S. war, Al-Qaeda is now thriving. The same Al-Qaeda, yes, created by the U.S. government in order to harm the Soviets. And today, at least 13,000 civilians in Afghanistan are dead as a result of that war with Al-Qaeda. So with all respect to Ms. Fitzgerald from the Irish Times, this is not propaganda. 
Rather, it is the question that every American should be demanding answers on from Congress and from this president. Why are we giving al-Qaeda fighters money and weapons to overthrow yet another government in the Middle East? Today, our government claims they're freeing the people of Syria. Tomorrow, if history tells us anything, we will be killing and wounding civilians in airstrikes and then referring to them as collateral damage in a war with an enemy who we brought to power. After Iraq, there was Libya, where we were asked to believe that the invasion of the oil-rich country and rush to set up a central bank by the foreign-backed opposition was nothing more than an attempt to save the country from a power-mad dictator who was arming his troops with Viagra to help them rape innocent civilians. Nick, uh, you had a chance to speak with the chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, uh, the, the issue being Gaddafi, the Libyans, what they're doing. What did, they, what did he tell you? Well, one of the things he wants to investigate now, he says, is priorities to investigate allegations of rape, rape that may be systematic and rape that's being assisted, he said, by the distribution of Viagra or Viagra-like products, sexually uh, performance-enhancing products that are getting in the hands of uh, Gaddafi's forces and are being used uh, as part of gang rape. And these are allegations that are surfacing that he says he wants to investigate as a priority until this pretext was overturned by a pesky reporter asking for actual evidence of these crimes. How many people have been, uh, were being killed and in which town, in which site, and uh, what kind of uh, the crimes he has ever done in your uh, uh, investigations? I advise you to read the application of the prosecutor's office, many pages, I think it was 77 pages, we describe in detail the facts, most of it is public, and the judges also decided analyzing the evidence. So, of course, we are prosecutors and judges, so we rely on facts. So we prove the crimes. That's what we did. We present the case to the judges, and for a month and 10 days, three judges from three different continents make an independent evaluation, and they decided. As pointed out by Luis Moreno Ocampo, the document does have 77 pages, but most of its content is not public. Pages 17 to 71 have been redacted, precisely the ones enclosing the summaries of evidence and testimonies. U.S. National Security Advisor Brzezinski flew to Pakistan to set about rallying resistance. He wanted to arm the Mujahideen without revealing America's role. On the Afghan border near the Khyber Pass, he urged the soldiers of God to redouble their efforts. We know of their deep belief in God, and we are confident that their struggle will succeed. That land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. The purpose of coordinating with the Pakistanis will be to make the Soviets bleed for as much as long as is possible. Question. The former director of the CIA, Robert Gates, stated in his memoirs 
that the American intelligence services began to aid the Mujahideen in Afghanistan six months before the Soviet intervention. In this period, you were the National Security Advisor to President Carter. You therefore played a role in this affair. Is that correct? Brzezinski Yes. According to the official version of history, CIA aid to the Mujahideen began during 1980. That is to say, after the Soviet army invaded Afghanistan on the 24th of December 1979. But the reality, secretly guarded until now, is completely otherwise. Indeed, it was July 3, 1979, that President Carter signed the first directive for secret aid to the opponents of the pro-Soviet regime in Kabul. And that very day, I wrote a note to the President in which I explained to him that in my opinion, this aid was going to induce a Soviet military intervention. Question. Despite this risk, you were an advocate of this co covert plan, but perhaps you yourself desired this Soviet entry into war and looked to provoke it. Brzezinski. It isn't quite like that. We didn't push the Russians to intervene, but we knowingly increased the probability that they would. Question. When the Soviets justified their intervention by asserting that they intended to fight against a secret involvement of the United States in Afghanistan, people didn't believe them. However, there was a basis of truth. You don't regret anything today? Brzezinski. Regret what? That secret operation was an excellent idea. It had the effect of drawing the Russians into the Afghan trap. And you want me to regret it? The day that the Soviets officially crossed the border, I wrote to President Carter saying, we now have the opportunity of giving the USSR its own Vietnam War. Indeed, for almost 10 years, Moscow had to carry on a war unsupportable by the government, a conflict that brought about the demoralization and finally the breakup of the Soviet Empire. Question. And neither do you regret having supported Islamic fundamentalism, which has given arms and advice to future terrorists? Brzezinski. What is more important in world history, the Taliban or the collapse of the Soviet Empire? Some agitated Muslims or the liberation of Central Europe and the end of the Cold War?
set site. When I was a cadet, what's the first, what's the cadet motto at West Point? You will not lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate those who do. I, I, I was the CI director. We lied, we cheated, we steal and stole. It's, it was like, we, we, had, we, had entire, we had entire training courses. Uh, it, uh, it, it, it reminds you of the, uh, uh, the glory of the American experiment. Hey, and Elkai, here we go, watch this. There's a early 2014 email from Hillary Clinton, so not so long after she left Secretary of State, to her campaign manager, John Podesta. Uh, that email, it states uh, that ISIL, ISIS, is uh, funded by Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Mm. The governments of Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Now th this is a, I actually, I think this is the most significant email in the whole collection. Mm. Uh, and perhaps because Saudi and Qatari money is spread um, all over the place, inclu including into many media institutions. All serious analysts know, uh, even the US government uh, has mentioned or, or agreed with that some Saudi figures have been supporting ISIS, funding ISIS. But the dodge has always been that's uh, what well, it's just some rogue princes using their cut of the oil money to do whatever they like, but actually the government disapproves. But that email says that no, it is the governments of Saudi and the government uh, mm. and Qatar uh, that have been funding ISIS. The Saudi. Okay, that's just a little background information, just so you know. Isn't that crazy? We're sending troops to guard Saudi's oil and they're funding ISIS? United States also armed ISIS. And uh, well, here's a little bit of it. Here's uh, an interview with General Flynn. 2012, your agency was saying, quote, the Salafists, the Muslim Brotherhood, and Al-Qaeda in Iraq are the major forces driving the insurgency in Syria. Mm -hmm. In 2012, the yeah. U.S. was helping coordinate arms transfers to those same groups. Why did you not stop that? Did you hear that? It's being revealed. Now, I want to make the case for secrecy in government when it comes to the conduct of national security affairs and, and possibly for deception where that's appropriate. You know, Winston Churchill said during World War II that in wartime, truth is so important it should be surrounded by a bodyguard of lies. Do you really believe that? Absolutely. You, you would lie in order to preserve the truth. If, if I had to say something I knew was false to protect American national security, I would do it. I don't think we're often faced with that difficulty. But would I lie about where the D-Day invasion was going to take place to deceive the Germans? You better believe why, it. Why do people in the government think that the rules of society or the laws don't apply to them? Because they are not dealing in the civil society we live in under the Constitution. They are dealing in an anarchic environment internationally where different rules apply. But you took an oath to uphold the Constitution, and the Constitution mandates certain openness and certain fairness. You're willing to do away with that in order to achieve a, a, a temporary military goal? And I think as Justice Jackson uh, said in a famous decision, the Constitution's not a suicide pact. But you took an oath to it. That, that's exactly right. And I think defending the United States from foreign threats uh, does require actions that in a normal business environment in the United States we would find unprofessional. You know, I don't make any apology for it. I prefer...
Russia is invited in by the legitimate regime. They were invited in and were not invited in. We're flying in airspace there where they can turn on the air defense and we have a very different scene. They are targeted by the opposition and we are arming. So, and training. The reason Russia came in is because ISIL was getting stronger. Daesh was threatening the possibility of going to Damascus and so forth. And that's why Russia came in, because they didn't want a Daesh government. And they supported Assad. And, and, uh, and we know that this was, this was growing. We were watching. We saw that, that Daesh was growing in strength. And we thought Assad was threatened. We thought, however, we could probably manage, uh, you know, that Assad might then negotiate. Instead of negotiating, you got Assad. Now you got the Putin to support him. So you think the only solution is for somebody to come in and get rid of Assad? Yes. That's the only solution. Yes. Who's that going to be? Who's going to do that? Three years ago, I would say you. But right now, I don't know. What we're trying to do is help. Syrians to fight for their own country. And we've been spending a lot of money, a lot of effort to try to help do this. So there's an opposition there. The opposition is doing very well. And Russia came in. Uh, that's a problem, I know, because, you know, we, uh, uh, we don't behave like Russia. It's just a different standard. We're trying to empower Syrians to be able to fight against this guy. Now, now, the Russians have changed the equation, unfortunately. The Russians have changed the equation. President Obama reportedly signing off on this. Sources say CIA operatives are on the ground in Libya and in contact with the opposition. And joining us to talk more about the CIA's possible role in Libya from Washington, former CIA counterterrorism analyst Michael Scheuer. Michael, thanks for being with us this morning. You're welcome. So there are reports out, again, that the CIA is on the ground in Libya, uh, contacting and vetting the rebels. Is this setting the stage to arm them? I don't think there's any other uh, possible reason for it. And, and uh, the president clearly has sent the agency in to find out who he is supporting and to see what kind of material, uh, human material, we would have to work with if we decided to, if the president decided to arm and train these people over the longer term. Yeah, and you're concerned about this prospect. You think it could become another Taliban situation for the U.S. What, in your mind, is the worst case scenario here? Well, Libya has been very strong in sending young men or having its young men go overseas to fight in Islamic insurgencies in the Balkans, in Chechnya, Afghanistan, especially Iraq, when the height of the fighting was there. Those that don't get killed, of course, go home. And I think the core of the resistance, whatever little military, military ability they have, is probably made up by people we, elsewhere we would call mujahideen. And so it's a, it's a dicey proposition to be getting involved with this. I'm not sure that 
uh, the opposition, if it takes power, is going to be much better than was Gaddafi. But that's why you need to have the CIA, I presume, in there vetting, as we said, who, who are these people, who are the elements that are funding them or supporting them, who are the, the politically the most, uh, the most palatable and the least palatable among them. The White House saying that no decision has been made. I have a question for you as a, as a CIA veteran, I guess. I mean, the fact that we even know about this is that is that unusual? I mean, should we just assume that the CIA in this sort of a situation would, of course, be in there on the ground? Well, it, it, you have to assume that the president wants the best information that he can get. And if he wants to have that information, he has to have somebody on the ground. And so, yes, I think you assume wherever there's trouble, you'll find the agency. Uh, the other point I would make here is that vetting the people who are in the opposition of course is only uh, you're only able to do that to the extent that they're willing to talk to you I think the agency will find a lot of people who are pro-democracy and and westernized happy to talk to them the the more Islamic oriented people aren't going to talk to them because that would bring into question our air support for them so uh, it, this is a this is a mission that's a very difficult one and the chances of success are really uh, probably not better than 50-50. What's the alternative um, if we don't arm the rebels and they're clearly outmanned and outgunned by uh, Qaddafi's forces? Um, what's the better solution here? The better solution was, as Mr. Paul said, never go at all. This was none of our business. But I think what we're seeing is the string is playing out. We threatened Qaddafi and that didn't work. There's an arms embargo and an economic embargo. That didn't work. There was a UN resolution and that didn't work. Aerial bombing has continued and has impact, but it hasn't defeated him. Now we're at the stage where we're going to try to apparently try to train and arm the resistance. That takes a long time. I don't know if we have that time against Gaddafi. What, what we're seeing is the president being put, putting himself into a corner where his only option is ground troops. But that's something that is not, this, that's something that no one says that they want to do in this administration. I mean, they, they simply don't want to do that. They want Well, they don't. Well, the, the, the choice may come down to admitting that it was a mistake and being defeated in the sense that Gaddafi survives or putting ground troops in. Nations are a lot like people. They don't like making, uh, admitting to mistakes. And uh, maybe they don't want to put them in. But when it comes down to looking defeat in the face, I wonder. You know, you led the CIA's unit that tracked Osama bin Laden 1996 to 1999, and, and you believe that, uh, much like that situation, America's involvement in Libya could prove to be a recruiting tool for extremists. Why? Oh, oh it's absolutely a recruiting tool. It's, it's the American-led West attacking a Muslim country that has oil. They've been oil. very careful to say it's not the American-led West, that NATO has now fully taken over the operations. Um, uh, well, that yes, may our firepower was used in the beginning, but that this is uh, a coalition that includes Arab states. That may fool some Americans. Uh, it's not going to fool the people who sympathize with bin Laden and other Islamists. This is really a U.S.-led operation. And you talk about the Arab states that are involved. The Arab states are tyrannies that are hated by their own people. This is, a, this is a piece of theater set up by Mrs. Clinton and Mrs. Mr. McCain and the, the bipartisan group that loves to intervene abroad. In the Muslim world, this is Americans killing Muslims again, and it looks like it's for oil. I, I just want to ask, are you trying to have it both ways and saying that, okay, these are tyrannies that hate their own people? Well, that's why we're helping, because in Libya, it was the people that wanted Gaddafi out, that they were tired of it. So weren't we then supporting uh, Islamic democracy, I guess you could say, in these countries where they're tired of totalitarian rule? 
If we were supporting Islamic democracy, that would be one thing. But if you listen to Mrs. Clinton and especially the rather crazed Miss Rice at the U.N., this is all about democracy in a world where, where democracy is not going to take hold. I think it's very clear, Michael Scheuer, that you are no fan of this policy and this administration. I, I think calling uh, Ambassador Rice crazed is, is certainly a, 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 a significant charge. Um, well, I don't know. I've just listened to her. You know, that's only my impression. And I have to say, this is not a Democratic problem. This is a Republican problem, too. Both parties love to intervene in other people's business where there are no U.S. interests at stake and where we spend enormous amounts of money at a time when we're nearly bankrupt. That doesn't seem to me to be a wise practice of American and statesmanship. That's, and that's a whole other story. That it, we, it, it, to call the United States bankrupt, the United States is running humongous deficits, yes, but the economy and this mission in Libya are, are two separate issues. They're not separate issues, ma'am. You're just carrying the water for Mr. Obama. I'm certainly not carrying anyone's water, and, and, that, and I, I will assure you of that. Michael Scheuer, thank you so much for your time. Um, we, you know, we've had a very long, exhaustive interview. You had plenty of time to give your point of view on that. Uh, we're going to be right back. It's 38 minutes past. Thanks, Michael. My policy from the beginning has been that uh, President Assad uh, had lost credibility, that he uh, attacked his own people, has killed his own people, uh, unleashed a military against innocent civilians, uh, and that the only way to bring stability and peace to Syria is going to be for Assad to step down and, and to move forward on a political transition. Now in its third day, Operation Odyssey Dawn gathered steam as aircraft from more and more countries joined American jets in enforcing a no-fly zone over Libya. Their mission is limited to stopping Gaddafi from attacking his own people. But the commander-in-chief, monitoring events while on a state visit to Chile, wants to stop Gaddafi, period. It is U.S. policy that Gaddafi needs to go. Force of arms alone may not be able to give the president what he wants. Thank you for appearing, Secretary Clinton, and I'm glad to see your health is improving. One of the things that disappointed me most about the original 9-11 was no one was fired. We spent trillions of dollars, but there were a lot of human errors. These are judgment errors, and the people who make judgment errors need to be replaced, fired, and no longer in a position of making these judgment calls. So we have a review board. Review board finds 64 different things that we could change. A lot of them are common sense and should be done, but the question is, it's a failure of leadership that they weren't done in advance and four lives were cost because of this. I'm glad that you're accepting responsibility. I think that ultimately with your leaving, you accept the culpability for the worst tragedy since 9-11, and I really mean that. Had I been president at the time, and I found that you did not read the cables from Benghazi, you did not read the cables from Ambassador Stevens, I would have relieved you of your post. I think it's inexcusable. The thing is, is that, you know, we can understand that you're not reading every cable. I can understand that maybe you're not aware of the cable from the ambassador in Vienna that asked for $100,000 for an electrical charging station. I can understand that maybe you're not aware that your department spent $100,000 on three comedians who went to India on a promotional tour called Make Chi Not War. But I think you might be able to be understand and might be aware of the 80 million spent on a consulate in Mashar al-Sharif that will never be built. I think it's inexcusable that you did not know about this and that you did not read these cables. I would think by anybody's estimation, <clears throat> Libya has to have been one of the hottest of hot spots around the world. Not to know of the request for securities really, I think, cost these people their lives. Their lives could have been saved had someone been more available, had someone been aware of these things, more on top of the job. And the thing is, is 
I don't suspect you of bad motives. The review board said, well, these people weren't willfully neg negligent. I don't think you were willfully. I don't suspect your motives of wanting to serve your country, but it was a failure of leadership not to be involved. It was a failure of leadership not to know these things. And so I think it is good that you're accepting responsibility because no one else is. And this is, there is a certain amount of culpability to the worst tragedy since 9-11, and I'm glad you're accepting this. Now my question is, is the U.S. involved with any uh, procuring of weapons, transfer of weapons, buying, selling, anyhow transferring weapons to Turkey out of Libya? To Turkey? I, I will have to take that question for the record. I, I, nobody's ever raised that with me. I, it's, I been don't. In, it's been in news reports that ships have been leaving from Libya and that they may have weapons. And what I'd like to know is the annex that was close by, were they involved with procuring, buying, selling, obtaining weapons? And were any of these weapons being transferred to other countries, any countries, Turkey included? Well, Senator, you'll have to direct, direct that question to uh, the agency that uh, ran the annex. And I will, I will see what information is available and... Uh, You're saying you don't know. I do not know. I don't have any information on that. And, you know, with respect to personnel, Senator, you know, first, <clears throat> that's why we have um, independent people who uh, review uh, the situation as we did with uh, the Pickering and Mullen uh, ARB. And all four individuals identified uh, in the ARB have been removed from their job. Secondly, They've been placed on administrative leave while we step through the personnel process to determine the next steps. Uh, third, both Ambassador Pickering and Admiral Mullen specifically highlighted the reason why this is complicated because under federal statute and regulations, unsatisfactory leadership is not grounds for finding a breach of duty. Uh, the ARB did not find these four individuals breached their duty. So I have submitted legislation to this committee, to the Congress, uh, to fix this problem so future ARBs will not but, face but, the situation. But, but, but here's the problem. The review board has all these recommendations, but there's one thing they failed to address, and I think you failed to address, and it sets us up for another tragedy like this. They should have never been sent in there without a military guard. This should have been an embassy like in Baghdad in a war zone, and it should have been under military guard, significant military guard, Defense Department command. I don't think the State Department's capable of being in the war zone and protecting these people. I still don't think that. I think another tragedy could happen. I think another tragedy could happen in another war zone around the world. I think someone needs to make an executive decision. Someone needs to take leadership, and with that leadership should be that you shouldn't send them in with no Marines. You shouldn't send them in with Marines that are to guard records, not people. You shouldn't send them in with the same kind of ambassador or embassy staff that you have in Paris. I think that's inexcusable. Well, Senator, the reason I'm here today is to answer questions the best I can. Um, I am the uh, Secretary of State. Uh, and uh, the ARB made very clear uh, that the level of responsibility for the uh, failures that they outlined was set at the assistant secretary level and below. Um, the administration has sent officials to the Hill more than 30 times. We've given uh, as much information. We've been as transparent as we can. Um, obviously, we will continue to uh, brief you uh, and others uh, to answer any and all questions that you have uh, about uh, going forward. Um, the reason we
put into effect an accountability review board is to take it out of the heat of politics and partisanship and accusations and to put it in the hands of people who have no stake in the outcome. The reason I said make it open, tell the world is because I believe in transparency. I believe in taking responsibility uh, and I have done so and I hope that we're going to be able to uh, see a good working relationship uh, between the State Department and the committee going forward. If there is a theme that connects the dots in the Middle East, it is that chaos breeds terrorism. What much of the foreign policy elite fail to grasp, though, is that intervention to topple secular dictators has been the prime source of the chaos. Intervention when both choices are bad is a mistake. Intervention when both sides are evil is a mistake. Intervention that destabilizes the Middle East is a mistake. So yes, we must now defend ourselves from these barbarous jihadists. But let's not compound the problem by arming feckless rebels in Syria who seem to be merely a pit stop for weapons that are really on their way to ISIS. Intervention is not always the answer and often leads to unintended consequences. But some will argue, no, no, it's not intervention that led to this chaos. We didn't have enough intervention. They say if we had only given the rebels more arms, ISIS wouldn't be as strong now. The only problem is the facts argue otherwise. They say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. We gave 600 tons of weapons to the rebels, and they got weaker and weaker, and ISIS grew stronger. Perhaps, by throwing all of these weapons into the Civil War, we actually degraded Assad's ability to counter them. One of the men with the most knowledge on the ground of this, who's been our ambassador to Iraq and Syria, says, we don't have a clue who the moderates are and who the jihadists are, and even if they tell you they are the moderates, oh, we love Thomas Jefferson. Give us a shoulder-fired missile. We love Thomas Jefferson. Can you trust these people? Listen carefully. Your representatives are sending $500 million to people who will tactically ally with Al-Qaeda. So we asked them, I asked Secretary Kerry, I said, where do you get the authority to wage this war? And he says, from 2001, some of the people fighting weren't born in 2001. Many of the people who voted in 2001 are no longer living. We voted to go to war in Afghanistan, and I supported going into that war because we were attacked and we had to do something about it. But the thing is, that vote had nothing to do with this. 
absolutely nothing to do with this. You are a dishonest person if you say otherwise. That sounds pretty mean-spirited. Hear it again. You are intellectually dishonest if you argue that something passed in 2001 to do with the people who attacked us on 9-11 has anything to do with sending arms into Syria. The moderate rebels are fighting with Al-Qaeda. We could use the 2001 use of authorization of force, as Secretary Kerry understands it, we could use that authorization of force to attack the same people we're giving the weapons to. Think about the insanity of this. There are valid reasons for war. They should be few and far between. They should be very importantly debated, not shuffled into a 2,000-page bill and shuffled under the rug. When we go to war, it's the most important vote that any senator will ever take. Many on the other side have been better on this issue. When there was a Republican in office, there were loud voices on the other side. I see an empty chamber. I'm not sending any American soldiers. I'm not sending your son, your daughter, or mine over to the middle of that chaos. The people who live there need to stand up and fight. Civilized Islam needs to say to radical Islam, this does not represent our religion. That the beheading of civilians, that rape and killing women does not represent Islam. The voices aren't loud enough. Mr. Speaker, under U.S. law, it is illegal for you or me or any American to provide any type of assistance to Al-Qaeda, ISIS, or other terrorist groups. If we broke this law, we'd be thrown in jail. Yet the U.S. government's been violating this law for years, directly and indirectly supporting allies and partners of groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, with money, weapons, intelligence, and other support in their fight to overthrow the Syrian government. A recent New York Times article confirmed that rebel groups supported by the U.S., quote, have entered into battlefield alliances with the affiliate of Al-Qaeda in Syria, formerly known as al-Nusra. The Wall Street Journal reports that rebel groups are, quote, doubling down on their alliance with al-Qaeda. This alliance has rendered the phrase moderate rebels meaningless. We must stop this madness. We must stop arming terrorists. I'm introducing the Stop Arming Terrorists Act today to prohibit taxpayer dollars from being used to support terrorists. Mr. Speaker, I yield back. Potential downsides, the consequences of arming uh, some of the moderate rebels in Syria. When we see reports like uh, what happened just last week, uh, that the Free Syrian Army was apparently participating in the abduction of 40-some UN peacekeepers in the Golan Heights. Are these the people that we want to start supplying with weapons? Well, uh, two different things, in the Ukraine, and in Syria. Uh, Syria, we backed, I believe, in some cases, some of the wrong people, and uh, not in the right part of the Free Syrian Army, and that's a little confusing to people. So uh, I've always maintained, to go back quite some time, that we were backing the wrong types. I think it's going to turn out maybe this weekend, in a new special that Brett Baer is going to have Friday, it's going to show some of those weapons from Benghazi ended up in the hands of ISIS. So we help build ISIS. Now there's a danger there, and I'm with you. But in the Ukraine, we need to show support in uh, Iraq against Syria and uh, in Iraq. Uh, we need to show support that we're going to go and take down, I believe, take down ISIS. And we can do that without boosting Bashir al-Assad. 
if we back the right groups and we attack those parts of the ISIS elements that are doing the attacks into Iraq. That's what we need to focus on, and we need to do it now. Lieutenant General Tom McInerney, always appreciate your insight, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks, Doug. April 4, 2017, Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, on the verge of a military victory against the terrorist insurgency in his country and on the eve of peace talks that would secure his position as president, decided to use chemical weapons he didn't have against a target of no military significance in front of as many cameras as possible to cross the one red line that would ensure his own government's downfall. Soon after, the Academy Award-winning White Helmets, noted for their Oscar-worthy performances, persistent proximity to al-Qaeda, and financial dependence on U.S. aid, bravely risked their lives, handling Syrian victims barehanded against every protocol in the book. Without presenting a shred of evidence, President Donald Trump boldly launched a military strike against Sherrod Airfield because National Security Interest Promising to help the Beautiful Babies Offer does not apply to babies in Gaza, Yemen, Pakistan, or basically anywhere else. That military strike, a volley of 59 Tomahawk land attack missiles of which 23 actually made it to the target, failed to take out a single runway or even keep the airbase from operating for even 24 hours, but was a complete success for ExxonMobil, Raytheon, and Donald Trump. No one could question the wisdom of striking Syria, except Donald Trump. And no one could oppose such a move, except Russia. The Trump train, still convinced by candidate Trump, And by listening to guys like Lindsey Graham drop bombs here, drop bombs on Assad, drop bombs on ISIS, oh, but they're fighting each other, so maybe we shouldn't do that. And, So could you convince Putin to get Assad to step aside? Well, they've been trying to do that. Could I? I don't think it's that important, to be honest with you. I think, frankly, let's say you get rid of Assad or you knock out that government. Who's going to take over? The people that were backing and then you're going to have, like, Libya? Mm -hmm. Concluded that this was seventh-dimensional backgammon to make China afraid of the U.S.'s willingness to spend $100 million in a fearsome show of failing to destroy a single airfield. Throughout the world, people rejoice as a horrible secular regime in the Middle East is replaced by yet another peace-loving band of ragtag human rights campaigners and child beheaders motivated by a desire to subdue the armies of Rome in an apocalyptic confrontation in Dabiq. The chemicals for the previous red line attack in Syria have since been proven to come from Libya with U.S. approval, but that's probably not relevant to this case. The CIA has released declassified report after declassified report showing that the plan to topple Syria's government has been in the works for decades, but this just shows that they were right all along. The mainstream media unquestioningly asserts that the story is true because the U.S. government says so, but that's okay because we all know the MSM is full of unbiased truth-tellers and dig hard to get the raw facts on every story. We see these beautiful pictures at night from the decks of these two U.S. Navy vessels in the eastern Mediterranean. I am tempted to quote the great Leonard Cohen. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons, um, and they are beautiful pictures. Even members of Congress think the story is a load of hogwash, but that's okay because they're probably crazy. Because I don't, frankly, I don't think Assad would have done that. It does not serve his interests. It would tend to draw us into that civil war even further. Who, and who so, do you think? Who do you think is behind it? You think you? Who do you think is behind it? Meanwhile, the White House has released a report on its intelligence about the chemical attack that refutes its own version of the story. But that's okay because when has the White House ever lied people into war? This man doesn't exist, and if you think he does, you're an enemy of humanity who should apologize for having been born. Likewise, him, her, her, him, and him. And him and her. 
This is the 100% true story of the serious strikes, and if you support sites like the Corporate Report that question it in any way, you are a moonbeam, fake news, tyrant-loving, hippie-pinko-Russian agent and should commit ritual suicide immediately. If you love your country and or Liberty, NASCAR, Supermodels, TV, Water Slides, or your mother, you will not question this story in any way. Ever. This message has been brought to you by the Friends of the Brookings Institute, Raytheon, Genie Oil, Oded Yunon, ICIASIS, and the New York Times. Because ignorance is strength. You'd have to agree that now oh, totally. the impeachment inquiry is underway, sparked by a complaint from someone within the intelligence well, you know, community. The, the funny, it feeds the president's uh, the, concern and often used term about a deep state being well, there to take you him know, out. Thank God for the deep state. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think... You know, everyone here has seen this progression of diplomats and intelligence officers and White House people trooping up to Capitol Hill right now and saying, these are people who are doing their duty who are responding to a higher call. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't, I guess it doesn't, well, think about it for a minute. With all of the people who knew what was going on here, it took an intelligence officer to step forward and say something about it, which was the... Uh, the, the trigger that then unleashed everything else. Now, why does that happen? What I tell American people why that happens is this is the institution in the U.S. government that with all of its flaws, and it makes mistakes, is institutionally committed to objectivity and to telling the truth. It is, it is one of the few institutions in Washington that is not in a chain of command that makes or implements policy. Its whole job is to speak the truth, it's engraved in marble in the lobby. This dysfunctional... What, what my constant cry was that our biggest problem is our allies. Our allies in the region were our largest problem in Syria. The Turks were great friends, and I have a great relationship with Erdogan, which I just spent a lot of time with. The Saudis, the Emiratis, etc. What were they doing? They were so determined to take down Assad and essentially have a proxy Sunni-Shia war, what did they do? They poured hundreds of millions of dollars and tens, thousands of tons of weapons into anyone who would fight against Assad. Except that the people who were being, who were being supplied were al-Nusra and al-Qaeda and the extremist elements of jihadis coming from other parts of the world. Now, you think I'm exaggerating. Take a look. Where did all of this go? So now what's happening? All of a sudden, everybody's awakened because this outfit called ISIL, which was al-Qaeda in Iraq, which when they were essentially thrown out of Iraq, found open space and territory in, in western, excuse me, in eastern Syria, worked with al-Nusra, who we declared a terrorist group early on, and we could not convince our colleagues to stop supplying them. So what happened? Now all of a sudden, I don't want to be too facetious, but uh, they have seen the Lord. Now we have, been, the president's been able to put together a coalition of our Sunni neighbors, because America can't once again go in to a Muslim nation and be the aggressor. It has to be led by Sunnis to go and attack 
a Sunni organization. And so what do we have for the first time? Now Saudi Arabia has stopped the funding going in. Saudi Arabia is allowing training on its soil of American forces under Title X, open training. The Qataris have cut off their support for the most extreme elements of the terrorist organizations. And the Turks, President Erdogan told me, he's an old friend, said, you were right. We let too many people through. Now they're trying to seal their border. We all remember the lies that led the U.S. into the Iraq War. I, I don't think we ever said, at least I know I didn't say, that there was a direct connection between September the 11th and, 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 and Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein aids and protects terrorists, including members of al-Qaeda. You have said in the past that it was, quote, pretty well confirmed. No, I never said that. Okay. I, I never think said that, that is... No, it's absolutely not. What I said was, uh, it's been pretty well confirmed that he did go to Prague and he did meet with um, a senior official of the Iraqi intelligence service. It appears that there were not weapons of mass destruction there. You said you knew where they were. I did not. We know where they are. They're in the area around uh, Tikrit and Baghdad and, and uh, east, west, south, and north somewhere. 